Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On this week's episode, I'm excited to welcome a guest whose work has made her one of the most fierce and recognizable voices in fandom. As a host, you've seen her on such platforms as Nerdist and Sci-Fi, and as the creator and host of Collider Nightmares, she curated conversations with some of the genre's biggest names. As an actress, she's appeared in short films like The Drawing and Where Are You, and can soon be seen in the feature film Satanic Panic and a segment of the December holiday horror anthology A Christmas Miracle. On top of all that, you can listen to her wax philosophic about movies on her own podcast, Sending the Wolf. Please welcome host, actress, writer, and geek culture icon, Clark Wolf. Oh my gosh, what a lovely introduction. You must be a writer. You know, I have my moments. Welcome to the show, Clark. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have you here because I have a feeling we're going to have a lot to discuss. I think you're right. But before we get into all of that, why don't we start the show the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest, and it is simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. You can talk about why you're drawn to horror. Why do you think audiences are pulled towards it? Or, but why horror? Yeah, it's so I was, as I, I told you before we started recording, I was listening to our mutual friend Sam Wyman's episode of the podcast. And I, I felt like his answer was so eloquent and so perfect <laughs> that I was just like, oh, can I just say like what Sam said? Um, but I, I, that's a great episode. I'm really glad I listened to it. That's as a side note, just to give you a little pat on the back. Well, thank you. Uh, you're welcome. I mean it. But um, so I was thinking about why horror and specifically like why horror for me. And, you know, I think I don't know if I necessarily have the as a clear, concise answer, but I do. I do think that for me, horror has always been a space to exercise something, whether that's for me or why I think audiences enjoy it in general. Right. I think, you know, it's not a secret that horror, I think, at its best can be a release, can be discussing things, whether it's sex, whether it's political issues, whether it's fear, whether it's personal growth, whatever it is. And so um, in my own personal life why horror for me I think it's I, I think it's it's all of those reasons and I'm also fascinated by the academic side of horror I'm fascinated by analysis and theory and and really because I I've always been interested in politics um, mm -hmm. and so I think for me horror is a space where I can consistently find people talking about things. Right. And, uh, and personally, I am a talker, <laughs> as I'm sure you know. Um, but, um, but I also, like, really, when it comes to conflict or unrest or, or discomfort in my own life, I really like to, like, I'm, I, we need to talk about this now. Right. And, um, and so I think that horror is a great outlet for, for that, too. So, so I just, I think that consistently... It is the most um, it is a genre that is not afraid to talk about the things that make us the most uncomfortable. No. And I, I think that that is a very succinct and, and brilliant answer, because one thing that I have always said about horror is when done well, it can be the most powerful of all genres. Yes. And uh, obviously, I'm a fan. I came to this as a fan. Uh, I grew up watching movies of all stripes and uh, especially like you know some of the late night cable horror movies they were <laughs> you know made with a, a penny and a, a stick of gum and a, yes. and a dream uh, but when I really started connecting this world with my own identity and the things that I was working out and seeing how creators were also putting that 
into the otherness of horror, I realized, oh, there's such a power here. Yeah. And uh, that's really what Dead for Filth was born out of, is this idea of discussion. The, the notion that horror can represent so much. It can be our catharsis to escape the fear of the real world. It can be the representation of the otherness, whether the otherness is the monster or whether the otherness is the final girl or whether the otherness is just that sense of trying to belong. And... Uh, I really value uh, horror's ability to tackle issues. Before we went on the air, we talked uh, about how Godzilla was born out of the atomic yes. weapon. Yes. Or, you know, we've seen, uh, in, it's come up in, in previous episodes, uh, like Night of the Living Dead was a commentary on, on civil rights. And uh, discussing politics within genre cinema, it, it really proves how versatile horror can be. Mm-hmm. And leaping ahead, one of the things I really like about your show, uh, Sending the Wolf, yes. is uh, your your mission statement is you pick films from the AFI catalog of uh, you know the different lists, mm-hmm. and each week you sit down with a guest and talk about it. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing that seems to happen quite frequently on your show is how Often you deconstruct the gender politics of these movies that have been very, very uh, key to our cultural zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. And I I really appreciate that. Like I came on the show and we talked about When Harry Met Sally, which is a movie that we both love. But even in the context of that discussion, there were things that were discussed about how – Harry has this notion that men and women can't be friends and how for young girls and young boys yes. watching this movie at the time they did is that damaging to how we pr- approach relationships. Yeah. And I know that we walked away still saying very favorable things about this film, but I also know that you've approached classics that you really like afterwards thought, oh, no. Yeah. And uh I love your passion for for deconstruction and, and looking into the politics of the movie. Do you do you really take gender politics a lot into account when you watch things? I I think that at this point I can't help it. Right. Um. At this point, as a as a viewer, it's just I think I've trained my eye to see it to catch it. Representation in general. Now I think as as if you are if one chooses to be a savvy moviegoer, you I don't know how you miss it. Right. Like if I see a movie that has come out in the last year and it's an all mostly white cast, I'm like, how did this happen? You know, and it's just that's the way that I have changed the way that I see things. Or um, you know, the way yeah, the way women are portrayed, the way men are portrayed, and so on and so forth. But I th- also think that in doing this, and and this was something that we talked about on on your episode of the pod as well, was was that I can look back and be aware, but also take into account context, the right. date and time, where we were as a culture, as a society, and and not necessarily punish, you know, um, like certain films that came out at a certain time. You you brought up this great point where you said that Sleepaway Camp is one where if it were made now, you go, uh, no, but it sort of grandfathered in, in a way. Yeah, and I'm interested in this idea of... Uh, Grandfathering. Yes. I actually wanted to talk to you about it while you were on the show today because something like Sleepaway Camp or or something as legendary as Psycho. Yes. The idea of, of gender confusion in Psycho is very problematic by the lens of 2019 because we now know more right. or people are having discussions that they were not comfortable having when Hitchcock made that movie. And what's fascinating to me is that we can still watch Psycho and say, yes, this is a classic because it is... Uh, a, a capsule of time, but 
also don't have that discussion in that manner now because you're not representing people well. Right. And that's not okay. And I, I think that any marginalized community that's been represented on film, we've had to go through those growing pains. I know that, like, you know, it's always a discussion about uh, women represented on film for so long. She was the love interest yeah. or the mom and, you know, was a supporting secondary character. For so many years, gay characters didn't even exist or were villains or were coded as, like, these Nelly characters. Mm-hmm. And then so it's sort of like... I can watch a, a Noel Coward movie from the 40s where, like, someone's just, like, a mincing homosexual. <laughs> yeah. But, like, I don't necessarily want to see that today. Correct. But we know more now. I mean, yeah. I, you know, I feel bad even saying we know more because right. there are people. We're still learning. It, we're still learning. That's yeah. right. And I think as long as we acknowledge how – I, if we acknowledge where we're at now, right. then, then that's – a good thing. Yes. Um, I, I recently had um, this really great guy. He's an actor and he plays in this movie Trivia League with me. His name's Andrew Guy. And uh, he came on my podcast and we talked about The Matrix. Okay. Now, Andrew Guy is a handsome, charming, straight, very attractive actor man. Right. And, uh, and he's the sweetest, most lovely person. And he loves action movies. That's sort of his brand. That's what he's right. known for. So we sat down to talk about The Matrix, and especially The Matrix celebrating its 20th anniversary this mm-hmm. year. Um, I had read some great think pieces, not only about you know the trans experience watching The Matrix. And and, um, and that's something I would be really interested in, not to, to interrupt. Yes. But, and I feel like it's a conversation that I would like to have with trans filmmakers Absolutely. because that's a narrative that I, I want their input on. But it's true when The Matrix came out, we were not publicly yet aware the Wachowskis were trans. Yes. And now when you watch this movie about the world that you are forced to inhabit as opposed to the reality of who you are, that's a very interesting read. And so I, I, I would love to get, you know, trans creators take on that. Absolutely. And and so, yes. And, and that was something, you know, Neo even says like Mr. Anderson or I'm sorry, um, Mr. Smith is it keeps calling him Mr. Anderson, Mr. Anderson. And by the end, when he's finally coming into his own, he says, my name is Neo. Like right. um, with Trinity, for instance, you know, Trinity, uh, they have this their opening exchange in the beginning is I thought you were a guy. And Trinity says most guys do. Um, And then watching Trinity's narrative as supporting Neo as the one when I'm watching this going, I don't know, I think Trinity's kind of the one, but that's just me, you know, and and so on and so forth. So the point I'm making is having this discussion with Andrew Guy was wonderful because he had approached it from a very different perspective as a fan for the last 20 years. This movie changed his life in a very different way. And then I was able to say, have you ever thought about this? And then we had a, a different kind of discussion. And that to me was just such a getting feed Feedback from my mostly straight male fan base was was going, oh, my God, I never even thought of this. But the fact that they were open to those conversations was so cool. And so I say that to say whether it is, you know, a queer journey or a female journey and or a female journey, what, you know, right. uh, um, I, I love looking back and sort of interpreting and then having those discussions because I think they are val- valid and valuable. But if The Matrix were made today, would Neo be the one or would Trinity? 
Trinity be the one? Like, I think there's actually kind of an argument to be made that right. maybe it would have been Trinity. Um, or And, you know, we can speculate forever, but that's just one example of how 20 years for this landmark movie that right. has these um, incredibly interesting and, and brilliant people behind it and their own personal journey, it's changed in just 20 years. So it's really interesting. It's true. And I will briefly for listeners, if you are out there and saying, you know, I need more quality queer content and queer narratives. Uh, When the Wachowskis came to Netflix with Sense8, they did one of the best representative shows for multiple, uh, multiple kinds of people and uh, I, I don't think enough people watched totally. it totally and that to me is is a genre show that uh, really did right by so many communities uh, and uh, if you want to see what the progression of the matrix could be that's something I highly recommend great suggestion um, well speaking of movies that change lives and and uh, you know becoming obsessed with this and allowing it to change your life we went on this side adventure to have this discussion <laughs> which is what the show is all about yeah. but let's take it back to the beginning okay where where did this all begin for you what was was the impetus for you to want to leap into the world of pop culture and, and make movies and be a voice for film and pop culture and, and fandom well I as far as as far back as I can remember the Wizard of Oz has been front and center for me right. um, I mean I honestly don't remember a time where the Wizard of Oz was not in the back of my head so I grew up watching just fell in love with film as early as I can remember and it was the Wizard of Oz and it was back to the future and it was Star Wars and Jaws and 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 you know lots of big iconic Hollywood movies um, and then as I got a little little older and, and I did gravitate towards um, fantasy right. and and you know while I was always interested in scary movies even as a little kid I was a scared kid right. so so I could only kind of tiptoe up to that line before I would not be able to sleep for a year uh, you know these movies really did have an impact on me if they were too much too soon right. so when I was younger I had this amazing babysitter named Heather and she and I are still friends mm-hmm. um and she was such an 80s child. Like, she loved, you know, Tim Burton and Pee Wee and Jim Henson and, you know, was into all of the really cool art and magical fantasy land that was the 1980s. So um, she introduced me to, you know, the witches and Labyrinth and the never-ending story and Pee Wee and Tim Burton and Beetlejuice and all these things. And so that was a huge part of me as a kid um, you know, entertaining, kind of barely scratching my my little my horror itch. Right. Um, when I was five years old, my babysitter showed me Stephen King's It, the miniseries, and that scarred me for, for a long time. So that was a bad idea. Um, and then when I was 12, I went over to my friend Ginny, who's still one of my best friends to this day, um, went to her house for Halloween, and we watched Carrie, and then we watched The Exorcist. And The Exorcist, I didn't even really watch The Exorcist. I watched it like with my hands over my <laughs> eyes, but just like listening. And without exaggeration, I did not sleep for a year after I experienced that. And I, it wasn't a religious thing. It wasn't like, you know, it it was purely filmmaking and just the terror of of that movie. Um, As I got a little older and started, because again, I was was reading, I had an Entertainment Weekly subscription since I was like 10. So I was always reading and learning about film and, and history and all of that. And as I got a little older and into high school, I was able to 
process a little better. And so that's right. when I really started diving into into horror. And at the time, actually, when I was in high school, 9-11 happened. And then there was um, the invasion of Iraq. And um, I bring this up because, as I mentioned earlier, I've always been interested in politics. My parents are very political. They're very politically aware people. Now, they're not activists, right. um, but they are very interested in politics. And um, so I say that because as this was going on, you know, I was finally putting together examples of horror meaning something and political unrest and fear and how the two like I will defend hostile until the end of time because it's about xenophobia. It's about American entitlement. Um, You know, there's I the Hills Have Eyes, Alex Aja's movie um, was truly the first time that I sat in a movie theater and went, oh, this is all of the anger, all of the rage, all of the frustration that I feel being exercised on screen, a French director, like the movie is not subtle in any way, shape or form. Um, But but so and then as I was uh, and and so college was I studied film, political commentary and horror and sci-fi. I had a lot of professors that let me do that. So that was sort of the journey um, from when I was little to like present, essentially. No, and it's interesting, too, that you bring up Hostel, because what I think a lot of people don't realize when uh, the idea of air quotes torture porn comes up is uh, it did have that moment sort of in the mid thousands and a lot of naysayers who like to point fingers at the genre or say you know there's no no nothing of moral value in horror uh, they that's always the imagery they want to mm-hmm. look at instead of like looking at it as a complete and full uh, genre um, but what's fascinating is they tend to neglect to realize that the rise of torture porn uh, specific oh, and there there was torture in horror movies before, but like that specific moment with the saw and hostel and things that were going on where the, it was ultra gore, uh, really came out of the sort of Bush administration era where we're sitting at home and we're watching the news and Abu Ghraib and like the torture situation, yes. and so again, it's 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 that genre parallel. We're terrified by this because we're seeing it in our face. So how does that manifest in the things, the terror cinema? Exactly. And I think that's fascinating. So I love that you you uh, attached to that early on. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's analysis and theory is so interesting to me. And also, you know, we've we've spoken about it a little bit and you talk about it on this show often, you know, film, whether it's intentional or not, you know, Movies are telling us something. Right. They're, 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 and so you can, one can take as much or as little from that as they choose. But I, I believe that there is film. Film is having a movie is having a conversation. Right. I, I think. And um, now we can always get into the the side adventure of how people choose to interpret what you know. Maybe that's not the filmmaker's intention. Maybe it is. Who right. knows? But but still, I do think that that there is a lot of value to um, the conversations that movies are are having, and um, especially as time capsules, and especially when you're talking about great um, allegory or metaphor or whatever it is, horror or otherwise. Right. And so I've always found that fascinating and again I'm a talker so I want to chew on everything I want to understand I want to break it down I want to confront um and and so yeah that's something that's always been really important to me um because when I was growing up you know I 
Like I'm still close with my, I am close with my parents. I'm not close with my brother, but I grew up in a chaotic household. And so movies were a way, whether it was The Breakfast Club or 16 Candles, whether it was, you know, The Princess Bride, whether it was horror, you know, I was having a conversation with myself through these movies, you know? So, so yeah, that's something that's always been there for me and something that I find really important. And it seems like because of that, you were really drawn to the analysis. Yes. And I mean, you said so. Uh, and and I can see, obviously, then the through line that would lead you to some of the work that you mm-hmm. would later do as a host and a voice in the fandom space. Did you always know, though, that you wanted to creatively be involved in making films? Because I know you have a, a bit of a background in stage as well, yes, right? Yes, that's right. I've been doing theater since I was very, very little. I've always been a performer, a singer, an actress, you know, n- not so much a dancer, but <laughs> I can get by. <laughs> uh, but um, yes, I, I, you know, in fact, I wish in a lot of times that I could be satisfied in this life um, doing something that was not the creative part of the film business. I wish I could be satisfied being like an entertainment agent or a lawyer or something. Um, uh, Or or frankly, if I could be satisfied, truly satisfied teaching college, like teaching film to, to college kids that, that in another world would be like the thing that I do. But but I am, you know, I don't know what it is, but I'm not ready to give up on the on the creative part that whether that's the um you know, whether that's acting or whether that is um, writing or producing. I really enjoy producing. I really enjoy, you know, um, and there are so many different types of producers, but I really enjoy working with creatives, you know, working out a story, helping to tell that story, whether it was, you know, slashed the musical, which was a local thing here in L.A., or whether that was the Rosemary's Baby live read that we did, like facilitating creativity and and art is very fun for me. Well, and I can see in the role of producer how it sort of marries your identity. Yes. Because as a host and curator of panels and discussions and shows and, uh, you know, a lot of the different aspects of your hosting life and then the creative coming from the acting and the writing and bringing that together it's really all about creative curation and that's what uh, a good producer does and you know I think that's really cool that you can bring those worlds together because I'm sure in some ways it's more satisfying because you get to kind of do a little bit of both yes I mean truly I you know last year I, I produced this live read of Rosemary's Baby that was a fundraiser for Downtown Women's Center and Planned Parenthood. Right, which I went to. I know. And it was awesome. Thank you. And I just want to say for the record, you are a great Rosemary Woodhouse. Well, thank you. That is such a high compliment. Um, it was the mo- thing I was the most proud of that I did last year, truly. And it was one night in the back of a comic book store for 100 people and foldy chairs. Right. But, you know... Working like I went to Chelsea Stardust, who directed it and and assembled most of the cast, and said like, we we should do this. You know, I th- I want to do this as a play, honestly. Right. Um, but finding those rights are impossible, and it's never been done legally on stage before. But why don't we start with a live read, and why don't we do it? You know, to raise money, and and she was all on board, and then like getting people excited about what we were doing, and we were doing it for a cause, right. and we were doing it, and it did give me an opportunity to 
do the creative, do the the performance part. And I love that character of Rosemary Woodhouse so much. I love her in the novel. I love her in the film. I, you know, um, I think Mia Farrow is is wonderful in that role. Um, but I understand why that movie has been remade and retold and why other actors would jump at the opportunity to play those characters right. because, yes, they are iconic, whether it's uh, Cassavetes and and Mia Farrow and Ruth Gordon or otherwise. But 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 there are su- there's such meat there to yes. chew on and different interpretations. Well, talk about the politics, too. Yes. So, you know, uh, as Clark mentioned, she and Chelsea Stardust teamed up to to do this live read of Rosemary's Baby here in Los Angeles, and it raised money for uh, women's causes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, the thing, it, when we're talking about your interest in the politics mm-hmm. and the commentary and how that commentary morphs and changes over time, okay. the thing that is so striking about Rosemary's Baby is that today, yes. in 2019, the themes of that story, whether it be, you know, Ira Levin's book or the, the movie, which, of course, has its own sticky situation because of the Polanski yep. of it all. Absolutely. Uh, but those themes continue to resonate more than ever, which is a testament to the story, but kind of a sad fact of culture. Because... In a in a Me Too society, in a society where we're having we're still having discussion where men think that they deserve autonomy over women's bodies, Rosemary's Baby resonates so strongly, and it was very powerful to sit and watch that live read that night, knowing oh none of this has changed, nope. and how disappointing. Fifty years. That was yeah. what. That is what put the idea in my head. I was listening to Mia Farrow read the audio book because I had never read Ira Levin's book before, right. and I realized this is the fiftieth anniversary, uh, or the fiftieth anniversary of the book had uh, had passed, and the fiftieth anniversary of the film was last year. It was twenty eight or yeah, twenty eighteen, and that was what made it click for me. I was like, nothing is different. Right. Nothing. I mean, truly, like you know. We and Chelsea and I talked about, you know, Saperstein, the doctor, like and how the doctor is essentially the Internet and how, you know, the Internet will say, oh, no, don't listen to this person or don't listen to that person. What do doctors know? What is this? What, you know, just listen to me. I'll tell you the truth. Guy selling out his wife's body, you know, just throwing her under the bus and going, no, but I made this decision for the both of us. This is going to help both of us. Um, And as you say, the control and having autonomy over over women's bodies 50 years it was devastating to realize and um Terry Castle, who's William Castle's daughter, wanted to be there. She was traveling, so she couldn't be. But she wrote me this text, uh, and I read it before we started. And basically, she was saying, like, my father believed in women's rights, and I am still fighting for women's rights. My father would be so proud to know that this was being done, you know, to raise money for these causes. This was before Kavanaugh. Right. And I have to say, um, I've been thinking about this a lot, you know, because— Horror is a space for marginalized people Mm -hmm. and people who feel othered. And the fact that women 
and queer people are not taking and people of color are not taking over this genre. Right. Like obviously, God bless Jordan Peele and keep and he is he is a powerhouse and you know, but he, but he's one person. Yeah, he cannot do it alone. No, he yeah. can't. And and I was listening to Shudder's podcast, the She Kills podcast, which I did a couple episodes on, but I listened to all of them. And the Kavanaugh hearings came up multiple times. Right. And I have a feeling that we're going to see women if if we finally ever get to get to like tell stories. Right. Um specifically those Kavanaugh hearings are going to be a watershed moment for women in genre. Absolutely. Well, we talked about all of the themes in Rosemary's yes. Baby. And of course, like, and uh, you know, the unfortunate fact that all of them are still relevant today. But the one word we didn't really bring up that is very relevant to the Kavanaugh hearing is the idea of gaslighting. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned it, whether it be women, queer people, people of color. One thing that is is a very micro- issue in Rosemary's Baby that is representing a very macro problem is an establishment telling marginalized people, everything's fine. You're being crazy. Yes. We're not. No. And it's sort of like, I remember having this discussion during the last election cycle. And I was just like, look, if women and queer people and people of color and people of marginalized religions are telling you someone is dangerous, maybe listen, because we are the ones who always suffer from these people. Yeah. And it, it's just always shocking to me how often it's disregarded. Like, oh, no, no, everything will be fine. No, it's not. People are dying. But I think this yeah. goes back to, like, our discomfort with horror, the mainstream's yeah. discomfort with the horror genre. Because is it lucrative and monetarily successful? Yes, sure. it always will be. Does How many people say, I like horror movies? Not many. Right. You know, we are not comfortable like we we are not comfortable diving into these conversations and so it is safe for us to say no 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 you're overreacting you're overreacting i don't want to hear about this i don't want to talk about this i don't want to entertain the fact right. that maybe something is wrong because because the person who is dismissing it either can't change it, doesn't want to change it, or maybe a little bit of both. Exactly. And that there that makes people so uncomfortable. Um, so, yeah. Well, I get it. It's like they don't want to be asked the uncomfortable questions, but they need to be. Yeah. And I will further put this to our own communities. Sometimes we have to ask uncomfortable questions of each other. Mm-hmm. And, like, it, it's often a discussion within the LGBTQIA spectrum, like – we are all of those letters as a community, not just one. Right. And when you start veering your perspective to one, you need to step back. This is something that I need to put on myself. I need to put on members of the of my community. It's like, what are you doing to help represent everybody? Yeah. And uh, it's true. Sometimes it's easier to be like, oh, I don't want to deal with that today. Well, if not today, when? And also, you know, the idea, we were talking about it a little bit, but, uh, you know, keep your politics out of my monsters. Keep yeah. your politics out of my horror. You know, I'm, I don't want to deal with politics. Monsters N- are politics. Yes. yes. And on top of that, people's existence at, right now is political. Right. My existence as a woman 
is political 100%. right now. Your existence as a gay man is political right now, and so on and so forth. So there is no leaving the politics out of it. <laughs> no. I exist, therefore, the politics are here. It's true. And I'm not, you know, and we all, you know, it's it's so hard to be a good, it's not so hard to be a good ally, but it is hard. It can feel challenging to keep up and do it the best way that you can, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. No, it's true. And uh, last year at Outfest, one of the keynote speakers said something that I've thought about every single day since. And uh, she said, you know, even in 2018 at the Mm -hmm. time, she said, to be visibly queer is a political act. Yes. And that is true. And I want to sell that idea to anyone who's listening this show. Merely living your life to someone else in the world is a political act. Mm-hmm. So there is no leaving politics out of our art. There is no leaving politics out of our lives. Because if you step outside to someone somewhere, they want to change what you are doing. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the things we discussed. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to me about your your movement into the world of professional hosting. Yes. Because you have gathered quite a resume. Nerdist, Sci-Fi, Collider. These are all like really awesome gigs in visible places in fandom in geek culture obviously uh collider nightmare is a show that you did all about your love of mm-hmm. horror uh, created by you so that's exciting that you were able to to move all that there uh so, so obviously this is born out of analysis a love of this but when did you realize you were gonna do that professionally well i uh so when i moved to los angeles um you know i certainly had every intention of being an actor um and uh and got to a place where but but i got out here and like i couldn't get an agent and i didn't know how to do any of that stuff and and i i kind of but at the same time so i was interning and i was you know networking in different ways but at the same time the internet was sort of and and like youtube and and you know self-created content right. was becoming more and more common and also we were seeing the rise of marvel and we were seeing the rise of geek culture truly exploding into the mainstream right and so i realized that you know as i saw other people creating content and talking about movies on the internet essentially i kind of thought okay you know i i feel comfortable speaking talking on my feet i have feel comfortable you know with my knowledge and my my skill set in analysis and debate and all of these things and uh and i am a woman in this space in the geek space with a passion for horror and the horror uh, my passion for horror was essentially my ga- my my little something extra. Right. Um, because yes, I can talk about superheroes all day long, and I can talk about nerdy movie stuff all day long. But the horror part was not something that I saw a lot of women talking about publicly, but also a lot of women, like you know, um, like a, yeah, that a lot of women were talking about publicly. Um, because they were not given the the opportunity because who you know so many different reasons why so i was able to sneak on to a movie chat show you know as a host which at the time meant um, ask the men on the panel the questions right and um, but as a but i did start chiming in a little and i did start kind of like you know trying to get my little foot in the door and um, and that and and the horror 
element of it was my little something extra. And so that was my that was my way in. And Ryan Turek was a guest at the time. He was, you know, managing Shock Till You Drop. And he was a guest on this movie talk show. And uh, and he and I met there. And then he brought me onto the Bloodcast. And so Ryan Turek and I did a podcast together for two years or whatever, mm-hmm. talking about horror. And uh, and then Nerdist, you know, my my gateway into Nerdist was like, yes, I, I've done all these things, but also I love horror. And they went, oh, now that's interesting. Interesting, right. and and so on. So the idea was never to become a pro- like I didn't even I didn't that was not intentional. But I did think, well, if I start to build a following, it's going to be a lot easier to get me into a room as an actor than if I have no following and no agent and no anything, you know, and no con and and meeting people. You know, I I met so many people through the hosting space, whether they were in front of the camera, behind the camera, hosts, you know, um, entertainment professionals, and so on. So that's sort of how that all came together, and as a result. Now, now I'm segueing into the part where I'm reminding people that I do have a background uh, on stage and as a performer, and I this this is something that I've I've been doing theater in Los Angeles. I've been you know showing up in short films every now and again, and and reminding people that I do that also. And so that's been a challenge, but also it's starting to pay off a little, which is exciting. Isn't it funny though? And it is that adage, you know, that if you close a door, a window opens. Yes. Or I always say for people moving to LA and who are looking to pursue a career in the business, sometimes when you're so focused on a goal, the other opportunity will be right there that can lead you to the goal. Yes. It just may not look like it at the time. Like you want, you moved here to act, mm-hmm. but you found your place and a name and a voice in this hosting space, which then will open the doors. That's right. And, I, you know, I'm when I moved here, it was specifically I'm going to be a screenwriter. I'm going to make horror movies and that's it. And then, I, you know, it is no secret to listeners on the podcast. I do a lot of TV movies. And I remember I got the call to do that first Christmas mm-hmm. movie. And I was just like, oh, do I do this? And I'm so glad I did. Yeah. Because it, one, opened me to a whole new audience. But then, like, even the connections – that I made there allow me to make my own movies, mm-hmm. like because then I know people, and and it, and I I love all those movies now too. It was something. It was a whole like thing that I was just like, oh, I I do like this, and it's uh, it's just so important to be receptive to the universe. Yeah. I'm not even like a spiritual person per se, but it's like sometimes what you need comes to you, and you just don't realize it. Uh, but there was a method to my madness in asking about this immediately after our talk about identity uh-huh. and your your space in the in the geek culture. Yeah, because as we know, geek culture can be very uh, what's the word passionate, uh-huh. but sometimes not always in the greatest ways. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I've done a lot of hosting myself. I do a lot of things with, at live events like Comic-Con and things. And I know what that immediate reaction, the tide of fandom looks like. Mm-hmm. Whether it's like, you know, you say something about a character on Supernatural and then wake up in the morning and there's like 3,000 comments about why you're wrong or blah, 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 blah. And I do know that it is particularly more difficult to be a woman in the geek space. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm just wondering what some of your experience has been with that because like, I know that uh, it, it feels like talking to people like yourself and other hosts like Danny Fernandez mm-hmm. or Rachel Evans that there are times where it seems like an uphill battle. For sure. I mean, the thing that I think is interesting, whether it's the horror space more specifically or the geek space a little more broadly, is that <laughs> nobody likes a... Th- 
Nobody falls in love with a thing that is considered weird or other or uncool if they do not feel weird or other or uncool. So the idea that we don't all have these shared experiences somewhere is just it's untrue. Right. And. I some of the fandoms, especially the men, some men who who are threatened or uncomfortable by women taking up space in those fandoms, they see us as as something. They see us as a um, like a cipher. You know what I mean? And they don't. They and I sometimes I wish I could say like, don't you understand that I ha- I felt it too. I experienced right. that thing that made me that pain that made me feel protective over my weird corner uh also and these characters mean something to me too and these properties mean something to me also um i have had really dangerous scary experiences um as a result of alleged fandoms but the truth of the matter is that i don't believe that they're because of fandoms i believe that they're an excuse. Those fandoms, you know, are are an excuse for people to be scary and dangerous. Right. Um, and, you know, I think that's a shame. I think it's really a bummer. But I also will say that, you know, um, as I have overcome those situations, um, sometimes with the help of law enforcement, um, sometimes with uh, just a community, um, like a digital community, uh, I have just done my best to gravitate towards the the spaces that encourage fandoms and and healthy fandoms right. and non toxic fandoms. And sometimes it could be a, a circling around the exact same character. But if you go to a place where you know um, you feel protected by your producers and by the content creators, uh, then that is that sort of reminded me of why I fell in love with this in the first place. Speaking of the idea of healthy fandom, uh, I'm kind of fascinated by something that we don't discuss a lot mm-hmm. within the space, and it's the idea of weaponized nostalgia. And oh. I, I don't know that it is, uh, that's my own phrase, uh-huh. but it's something I think about a lot because you see it with, with mega properties like a Star Wars or mm. Ghostbusters was a huge example a yes. few years ago. Yes, yes, yes. And I think a lot of the toxicity that you're talking about that really has nothing to do with with the fandom, but like they kind of projected onto that to work out their own misogyny mm-hmm. or their own toxic, you know, issues. Uh, I just don't know when we moved into the space where nostalgia became a genre of its own. Yeah, that's and, a great point. And mm-hmm. it's really bizarre to me because nostalgia to me is something that's very personal because nostalgia is tied to your own memories and your own life. And so when you make these demands and put these demands on hosts and creators and writers and actors to pay service to your nostalgia, what you're asking is literally an impossible feat because you cannot make a piece of art that is connected to every single person's personal lives. Yes. And so I see the the tide of the Internet and, and that kind of toxicity being more vocal. I'm sure it was always there. We just didn't know about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that fascinates me. I think there's something to be said. You know, <laughs> our industry is always trying to quantify. Yeah. So, and our industry is an industry that operates mostly out of fear. I hate to say that. I wish that I would, you know, for anyone listening, like they call it an in the entertainment industry or show business because it is an industry and it is a business. Right. And as much as I wish that it were as simple as like, 
I believe in you, kid. Go make that movie just the way you want. Right. You know, that would be amazing. But that's not the case. And so I bring this up because whether it is Ghostbusters or whether it is Star Wars, I wish I could remind executives that Twitter is not real life. No. And this idea, like this whole new culture of like, we don't like it, so we're going to make a petition for you to do a new one. Well, one, that's never going to happen. Although I guess it did with that hedgehog. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, that it should not be the function of, of creativity. My thing is, and this was going on with Game of Thrones, in mm-hmm. uh, love or hate the finale, I think it's important. And I say this as a writer and a storyteller, mm-hmm. but also as a fan. Storytellers owe you a story. Mm-hmm. That is the contract. You can love it. You cannot love it. That is your prerogative. What they do not owe you is autonomy over the story they are telling. Totally. If you want to tell a story, you go tell a story. Yes. It's just like, when did this happen? I do agree, but I will say it's so co- it's tough because like, uh, to use the Game of Thrones example, I think there are valid criticisms of For the sure. right, but it gets so conflated right. with also you didn't tell me the story I wanted to be told, therefore you are wrong. And it's like, no, that's not okay. But also, did the turn happen a little fast for Danny? Yeah, maybe. Sure, but then allow that criticism, have that discussion. Totally, I agree. Yeah. I also think, though, that with the internet and the the megaphone of the internet, like, you know, going back to the idea of quantifying something, you know, um, to use a Ghostbusters example, Ghostbusters is the most downvoted, you know, uh, trailer on YouTube. So executives go, uh-oh, I've quantified the fan reaction and they don't like it. And right. it's like, okay, but also they're not real life. And they probably weren't going to go see your stupid Ghostbusters movie anyway, whether it was men or women. Right. So, like, I, I think that that is... We get so wrapped, and I hate that social media is a necessary evil because it is. Right. I would love to be in a space where I could be um, Brad Pitt and not be on social media. That would be thumbs up. Right. Great. Sandy for, B, not on social media. Good job. But for people like us, we have to. We have to. Yeah. And we do have to engage. That is part of the business. Speaking of grandfathering, it's like Sandra Bullock got grandfathered in. She doesn't have to live in a world where social media is a thing. George Clooney doesn't have to live in a world where social media is a thing. Right. But for us coming up, we do have to live in that world because we are coming up in a time where everybody does everything. You know, you you we all we write and we produce and we are in front of the camera and we're behind the camera and we're, you know, the list goes on and on. You can't just do one thing and you do have to engage with a fan base. You do have to cultivate a fan base because, again, quantifying. You have to be able to show a producer or a studio, this is why you should let me in the door because right. I have I can quantify my value, which sucks because I wish it could be more about the, you know, qualifying right. my value. Which brings it full circle and it, it, it is uh, uh, indicative of why it's so difficult for marginalized voices yes. to break through because the gatekeepers are literally looking at things as if it is a, a, a financial bottom line. Yes. And it's it's a tricky space. It is. It really is. But it also can be a beautiful community building experience. Absolutely. And so taking the good with the bad, the problem is that sometimes the bad 
is legitimately dangerous. Right. And that sucks. Um, whether for, for a, a marginalized person on the Internet, the way the Internet is used now, um, which does provide cover for the people who are abusing the Internet. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So that has been that has been an experience that I have had with the fandom with fandoms in general. And um, and it's a bummer. But also now I've gotten to the point where I mean, knock on wood, we always have to be careful with our with our identities and our information. Um, but I feel like I've gotten to the point where a it doesn't get to me as much, um, but also People know who I am. They know that, yes, I want to talk to you about Game of Thrones. I want to talk to you about superheroes. I want to talk to you about horror movies. But I also want to say, fuck Brett Kavanaugh (laughs) and these abortion bans. And if you're coming to me, if you're following me anywhere, then you're going to know that that's part of our deal. Oh, no, I always crack up like when people wander to my page uh, on Twitter and they'll be like, what do you mean this? Why are you talking about this monster as if it's a it's a drag queen? I'm like, do you know me? I'm like, girl, have you been around? Like, welcome. Yeah, this is like literally like the last like twenty years. Yeah, <laughs> take it or leave it. Yeah. This might not be for you. Yeah, you don't have to stay, but this is not going to exactly, change. Exactly, exactly. Well, um, you know, and that's us just speaking power to our passion, and that's you know what makes this all exciting. And it's what make which it's what drives us, and you know what I encourage others to be driven for. Uh, and and speaking of passions, I you know we were talking about how you initially moved here to do acting. Yes, you mentioned you had been doing some short films. Yes, but now you're you're kind of jumping into the world of features as well. And as of this weekend uh, and th- this airing, this episode I think is going to air concurrently with the Overlook. Oh, great! Film festival. You are headed to the Overlook Film Festival for the world premiere of Satanic Panic. Yes. Uh, directed by our dear friend Chelsea Stardust. Yes. Which you are in. Yes. So tell me about this experience. It's cool. It's very cool. Um, I, You know, I so look, I don't want to overstate my involvement. I have a scene in the movie, but it's a fun scene and it's funny. And it also was the very first scene that we shot, that she shot in the entire movie. Like day one. Roll camera. Right. That was me and Haley doing our little bit. And it was really great for me to be able to be there, uh, not only because it's a great opportunity for me. And it's like, oh, finally, like, this is great. Um, And the scene went great and it was really funny and I'm proud of it. But also... I could be there with Chelsea for Chelsea, um, who is one of my dearest friends and who I do believe in, who I've been working with on small things and bigger things for years. And um, and I believe in her and I believe in her talent. And this was like, you know, yes, she had done, you know, she had done a feature film before uh, Satanic Panic, but this was the bigger budget and it actually had, ta- you know, stars. Well, that's I shouldn't say that because um, uh, All the We Destroy had stars in it, uh, but it was it was away from home. They didn't shoot in L.A. And it was a different type of team. And, um, you know, it was just really meaningful for me to be able to be there uh, on day one, scene one, frame one, take one. That's so cool. It was really cool. And it just worked out that way, too. It wasn't she didn't plan it that way. That's just how it worked out. Now, Satanic Panic was shot in Texas. Yes. And was that your first on-location shoot? Ooh, that's a great question. Yes, it was. Yeah. So what, what's that like? You know, you're getting on a plane, you're flying to another state to make yeah. a movie. Well, okay, so this is how scrappy uh, all of this is. Um, I was able to book that role because I was, you know, low-budget movies. Um, I was able to 
not book the role, but I was able to do the role because I was able to work as a local hire, which meant that I was going to put myself up and get myself out there. Okay, fine. This is why I got my Southwest credit card, so I could have points, so I could do this. Um, But that said, that weekend, my girlfriend, another girlfriend uh, who lives in Galveston, Texas, was going to come to Dallas for the weekend. So I went up a little early. We shot on Monday, first thing Monday morning. So I flew in on like Thursday night and we were going to have, you know, or Friday night, we were going to have the weekend with my girlfriend in in, in Dallas because uh, I didn't know how busy Chelsea was going to be you know she's like this is a feature away from home they're starting to shoot like who knew how much time she would have right um so my girlfriend who's also the queen of credit card points who books <laughs> everything on credit card points which is amazing um booked this beautiful hotel room in Dallas and um at the last minute she had to cancel but she gifted me the room which was so nice. And so I'm out there on my little Southwest credit card points. And my girlfriend has like, you know, gifted me this hotel room. And, you know, I just and I actually did get to spend a good amount of time with Chelsea and Sam Weinman, who was her assistant on the film and Mark Evans, who is the DP. And we did get to hang out. And and it was great. And um, and uh, it was a really cool experience. Um. I was really nervous because at first the character I play is a sex worker and um, Chelsea's vision for that character, since most of the scene takes place in a hotel doorway, was um, like very weird science. And uh, and I was like, oh, my tummy, I don't know if I can like, I don't want to, I don't know if I can do this. And so I was so nervous. And also I I got laryngitis the week before. Of course. Legitimate, never in my life had laryngitis before, had no voice, could not speak. That is not an exaggeration. I always thought laryngitis was like kind of a fake thing. Uh Uh-uh. It was very real. I'm surprised you've never gotten it at conventions. Anytime I do like conventions where I'm like at a table signing or do like panels, I have on on numerous occasions, especially San Diego, lost my voice afterwards. Yeah, I usually get like the cough or some sort of chest infection, but it never affected my vocal cords. So anyway, it was that. And so I couldn't work out. And I was like, (laughs) I was just like, what's happening? I'm going to have to be in underwear and I'm going to look bad. (laughs) And uh, and I was drinking bone broth and like start. It was such a bad like. And by the way, Chelsea would never encourage have encouraged me to do this. She didn't know that I was putting myself through this. And so we got to we got I got there and Chelsea wanted to take me out to dinner. We went to this nice restaurant. And before we started, I was and my voice had come back. And I was like, Chelsea, we need to talk about the costume before I order a drink, before I order a piece of food. We need to talk about this costume. Do you want me in the underwear in the Kelly LeBrock? Because I don't know. And she was like, Clark, you're eating dinner. You're ordering a cocktail. You will never feel uncomfortable. You look beautiful, blah, blah, blah. But she was just like, eat your damn dinner. And That's uh, our girl. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. And and I ended up wearing a bodysuit anyway, and it was very cute. And she never even shot me below the waist in the first place. <laughs> so it was like all of that for nothing. But it was, it was a really... I just felt so fortunate. I felt very, very fortunate. And um, and it was fun. And the scene is fun. And I'm proud. And and I'm proud of Chelsea. And I'm proud of Haley and and Sam and and it just and Mark Evans and the, this team, like this great crew. It was right. it was very cool. Well, uh, that speaks also to the whole idea that horror is a community, and yes, a family. Yes. And it's it's not just making a movie. It's getting to collaborate with people that you really like and yes. care about. And it's like we all come from from our own communities and then that community is is a community on top of it. And it's something that uh, I I really love to explore in discussion on this show, because I think to the outsider and I've talked about this before, 
people who are iffy on horror movies or are not sure how they feel about horror movies, they kind of view like people who are horror fans as sort of like weirdos or like, you know, into sick stuff. And I've said this in previous episodes, but when you're within this world, it's some of the kindest, most creative, Absolutely. collaborative, sweetest people. And when you're on a set of something, even something titled Satanic Panic, <laughs> yeah. there's a community to it. Yeah. And I love that. It was very cool. Was it hot in Texas? <laughs> no. no. It was like the coldest weekend and it rained. <laughs> and it was like literally record breaking rains. And they shot all of it on location. All of it. Chelsea had four company moves on day one in like record breaking rain. It, it was it was and it was cold. I had no pants on and it was very cold. Well, you know, speaking of on location and being cold. And being cold. <laughs> uh, so you and I actually also uh, intersect sort of yes. on the new holiday horror anthology December because I wrote and directed a segment and you are a star of another segment yes. directed by Vivian Vaughn called A Christmas Miracle. And you shot all of that in Lake Arrowhead. Mm-hmm. Also in the snow. In the snow. And you're just you're like wearing like a nightgown. Yes, it was cold. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about that project. I know it's a short, so you can't say too much because you don't want to spoil it. Sure, but. sure. Well, first of all, I want to say that I love yours. Oh, thank your you. Your segment is wonderful and uh, I'm excited for the world to see it. Um, and uh, so... That was very cool. Another actress, they had gone, they had thought they booked another actress for that role, and at the last minute, she had to drop out. So it was a Wednesday, and Vivian emailed me and said, Hi, I'm doing this short. Barbara Crampton is the co star. Uh, would you like to be in it? And also, it's shooting this weekend. Oh my God. And I was like, Oh. And so I read the script, and I was like, This is a great opportunity. It's a really cool role. I love Barbara. I, I had known her on social media, I had interviewed her like once or twice in past. But we we did not really know each other. Right. Um, and uh, and I loved the idea of working with a female director, to be honest with you. Got two in a row. I know. That's amazing. Like, like yeah. lucky me. And um, so so I and also I knew. So um, speaking of Chelsea, I called Chelsea because she know. I, and I was like, look, you know, I think this is a really good opportunity to because the horror community is a community. Yeah. And I was like, people are going to watch something Barbara's in. And if I wanted to try and reintroduce myself, this might be a good way. Oh, yeah. And it's also, but this is going to be a hard shoot. It rained all weekend that we were there. Um, snow on the ground. You know, it was legit freezing. And it was all night shoots. Right. So I called Chelsea and I was like, you know, what do you think? Like, do you think that I should, that, that do you think Vi- Vivian, is this a good idea? Or am I like setting myself up for something really bad? Right. And she was like, I love Vivian's work. Um, you know, I, I think you should absolutely do this. And you're right. Like, the horror community will watch it because Barbara is in it, if nothing right. else. And I was like, okay, cool. So, um, and I was already leaning towards yes anyway, but, but you know. And so I went, and it was such a great experience. And so I'll talk about a female, I mean, almost 100% female crew on that, on that short. And it looks so beautiful. And working with Barbara was amazing. She is just as dear as... Everybody says that she is. She's an actor's actor. She wants to play. She wants to talk. She wants to, like, work through it, Um, even if it's a four-page short. You know what I mean? And she was on board because I don't want to speak for her, but I think she would agree. She would tell you this. Um that she was on board because she wants to work with more female directors. Right. These are these are important things to her. And so um, I was so 
honored to be asked. I I I wanted to do a good job. I really wanted Vivian to to be glad that she got you know that that I was able to do it and and I wanted to show her that I was grateful for the experience but it was cold fortunately <laughs> the crew was nimble enough to that we actually so we had two shoot days they flipped them so originally we were supposed to do the exterior stuff first and then the interior stuff second and because it rained all day they switched it so they didn't put us out in the rain they put all their like lighting crew out in the rain it felt so bad for them but they worked super hard um and then we so we did the exteriors the second night and um it really was cold and there was a there was a lot of um there was a lot of barefoot walking around. Now, I will say the crew and Vivian were amazing about somebody was ready as soon as they called cut. Somebody wrapped me up in a blanket. You know, they they were the DP was great about saying, like, we can't see your feet in this. She can wear shoes like, right. you know, they they took really nice care of me, which was honestly which is what you want. You do. Yeah, yeah. And and it was people whose jobs like Stephanie, who's the pr- um, production designer who did an amazing job. Right. Um, she was actually the one of the ones there fastest with my coat and with a blanket and everybody took such nice care of me and it really it was it was meaningful because on smaller budget shoots sometimes things like that can go by the wayside I've been in those experiences before where they're just like I can't think about you I have to get my shot and um, that was not the case so it was and the work is gorgeous and it's beautiful I'm Uh, so impressed I was so uh glad to get uh we had an la rap party for all the yeah. la based cast and crew uh of december and uh we got to watch each other's segments and it's so atmospheric and yes. beautiful and you and barbara are just like transcendent thank in you it. it's uh i think people are really gonna dig it i hope so i hope so i'm i'm really proud of it all five at that rap party you know i was felt so lucky to be able to get to see all the la entries and um they're all great like truly i would not say that if i didn't think it they're all different and they're all great. And I'm like, represent LA. That's what I was really, I'm really excited for the feature as a whole now yes, because yes. I really feel like if everybody's bringing this level of creativity, because there's also sort of that, that idea of like, they're all holiday horror. Yes. Like how repetitive will this exactly. get? Exactly. But it doesn't. There was no, there was nothing repeated in the five that we saw. Yes. Like it was all very much like unique vision, unique creativity, uh, the energy was different in each of them, but in, in, in an appropriate way. Uh, I think that people are going to have a great time. I hope looking so. Looking forward to it. I so. hope so. Uh, Clark, what have you been watching lately that you like that inspires you? Ooh. It doesn't necessarily have to be horror, but of course, we always like a horror. Ooh, record. that's I. What have I been watching lately? I'm very into like podcasts and audiobooks and stuff like that. Oh, I'm listening to a book called Headful of Ghosts. Have you read this? No. Oh my god, it's by Paul Tremblay, and um, and I'm like halfway, a third of the way through. It's not very long. Um, it's about. Two little girls, like suburban family, and it's told from the perspective of the eight-year-old sister, Mary, and her older 14-year-old sister, Marjorie, is slowly becoming possessed by a demon. And watching, and you, I, I, you know, the the premise is kind of just like, okay, but the way that little Mary is written and uh, her interactions with her big sister, and also, you know, you're talking about possession stories and like teenage girl possession stories. It's like, yeah, I've seen it a million times, but the way that he 
writes, the same visuals you've seen a million times are so creepy. I think it truly is because we spend so much time with these little girls and we see the slow creep of the possession mm-hmm. um, that uh, it's it's really like unnerving. Um, so I've been listening to that audiobook, which I very much enjoy. And oh, and I watched The Perfection the other night. Oh, I have not seen it yet. I hear it's one of those, the less you know, the better. Yeah. But did you like it? I mean, yeah, it's crazy. It's so crazy. And, um, you know, Steven Weber, I am such a fan of Steven Weber, the actor. He is in the movie. Um, and uh, he and he is just one of my favorite performers. He, I, I really, I've obviously known who he was for a long time um, because he's obviously a sitcom star and like all of that and he's been working forever. Um, but he, he reads the unabridged audiobook of It. And I would argue that is the definitive way to read that book is let Steven Weber read it to You're you. a big audiobook person. I love them. I wasn't always. It was truly... It that got me into mm-hmm. audiobooks because the, that was the first someone was reading me a story with distinct characters and and also I it's hard for me to sit down and read without completely powering down truly I fall asleep in like six right. minutes um, so audiobooks have been great for me and I now I read all the time whereas I wouldn't before uh, I mean, yeah I love to read I have not yet really fully bridged the world of audiobooks uh-huh. but what I am into is audio plays yeah. I, I listen to like where it's a full cast uh, story uh, there's a company in the UK called Big Finish and they do a lot of audio stories but I also get into narrative podcasts for the same reason mm-hmm. like Earbud Theater uh, I had I, I was staffed onto narrative podcast shows cool. right? Darkest Night with Lee Pace and uh, Deadly Manners with Kristen Bell oh my god uh, I love Lee Pace can I just say he was he was great. He was our narrator, uh, and uh, he's got that great voice. Oh my god, he's um, so handsome! But no, it was cool because it was like I essentially did like two seasons of a TV sh- TV That's shows, so cool. but they were all audio, and uh-huh. like our cast were people like Lee and Dennis O'Hara from American Horror Story. Oh, I love him. RuPaul, LeVar Burton, Anna Klumsky. I was like, I was so lucky to work on those. Wow. But like, I fell in love with the idea of the audio play, yes. and I love the idea that. Um, the old timey radio plays are, are like back again because of podcasts. I'm a, I, I listen to uh, most of the podcasts I listen to uh, just when I'm on walks are, are story based. Yeah. I, I, I love Welcome to Night Vale and, uh, you know, uh, Alice Isn't Dead, if, if you've heard that. That's a great one. I haven't heard that one yet. I, I have had the pleasure of doing four earbud theater dramas, audio plays, and um, Jared Rivett, who writes and directs them, um, you know, I've said this before, and I think it is important to say, because in this business, people see you as one thing right. until they don't. And But it takes someone believing in you. Right. And I have to tell you that Chelsea Stardust, as we've already talked about, and Jared Rivett are the two people who have consistently said, I know what you can do. I know that there's more to you than talking about superheroes on, you know, (laughs) (laughs) on the Internet. And and Jared gave me the opportunity to do the lead in one of his earbud theater dramas um, called On the Line. And um, that was the first one a couple of years ago. And he has since written three additional roles for me. And I, I just wanted to say that I I love the medium as well because it allows you to it's why I love live reads too yeah. honestly it allows you to do so much as an actor 
without any of the, you know, um, industry nonsense hanging over your head. Right. You can, it doesn't matter if you're, was your head in the right place? Oh, we got to take that take again. Sorry, we didn't get it. I know you were acting just then, but could you do it again? It's, and which, by the way, part of the business, that's fine. Of course. But yeah. these audio plays, you can play different people. You can be different ages. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't. It it's so liberating, and um, I love listening to them. And I also love being a part of them. No, I'm a huge fan. And listeners, you know, when you're done listening to this, go listen to those episodes. Yeah, they're they are really good. I, I wouldn't encourage people to listen to them if I didn't truly believe that they were good. <laughs> Uh, well, we've talked a lot about projects. We know that Satanic Panic and December are coming. We just talked about like these audio stories yes. that people can listen to you on. Uh, and obviously, you're always up to something. You host your show. But what's next for you? What What's coming up that you can talk about? That is a great question. Um, you know, right now, I am loving being a cast member on DC Daily, which is a chat show on the DC Universe platform. Unfortunately, it's only available here in the US, but hopefully that will be changing soon. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is DC's, uh, you know, DC's platform where they put original content and content you've seen before. So we get to, as the cast of DC Daily, get to interview people and talk about what we've just seen and you know especially on the heels of doom patrol and swamp thing doom patrol is great isn't also awesome queer content Yes, 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 yes. I love Doom Patrol. (laughs) And uh, I think what's going to happen is people are going to sign up for Swamp Thing and then they're going to find Doom Patrol. And I'm hopeful that that Doom Patrol comes back. Uh, There have been no official announcements either way, but it's just so damn good. It's amazing. Um, So so if you are interested in in DC Universe and you live in the US, absolutely check out the platform. I I highly recommend a lot of the content on there, especially DC Daily. Um, And uh, I I'm also in a documentary called Memory, The Origins of Alien. Oh. Um, so this is Alexander O. Philippe's uh, next film. And um, it premiered at Sundance. And he is the person who did the um, the Hitchcock shower scene documentary. Oh, I saw that. Yes. That great. So he is uh, delving into the origins of Alien, Ridley Scott's Alien. And uh, I sat with him and his producer for a little while and did. And, and I have not seen the movie, but people... Are, have reached out to me and said that I am in the movie and that That's there's awesome. like great stuff in there. And so that makes me really happy. It I don't want to spoil what it is that I, I'm pretty sure made it in, but it's talking about looking... So it's talking about breaking down a very known character in Alien from a different way, especially with the respect to the way he interacts with female characters. Interesting. And uh, and I don't think it's a take that maybe had been talked about very much, but it definitely made it into the movie, and uh, I've gotten a lot of feedback about it, so that makes me happy. Well, I'm excited to hear. Also, I love, uh, I love Ridley Scott's Alien. Yes. Because it's a film that, again, is all about sexual politics. Oh. Um, we, we had Veronica Cartwright on the show. I saw that on your episodes list. And when I finished Sam's episode, I am jumping into <laughs> Veronica. Well, Veronica had a lot of things to say about, uh, you know, the sex uh, imagery of, of aliens. So oh, I definitely so I think excited. you're going to dig it having been in that documentary. Yes. I can't wait to see that. It, yeah, it's, it's going to make the festival circuit for sure. And they do have distribution. I just don't know if they've announced that plan yet. Gotcha. Um, but yes, it was in the trades that like distribution is good and it's going to be making the rounds internationally at festivals. Awesome. Um, and if you're listening to this and you want to cast me in something, <laughs> yes, please, please do. do uh, because <laughs> aside from that, work is slow. Uh, but, you know, it's 
been a fun time to be writing more. Right. And um, I wrote my first feature this year, which is a holiday rom-com, uh, which I very much appreciated all of your counsel on. <laughs> and um, and I'm very proud of it. I'm really proud of the way it came out. And that was my first screenplay. And, you know, getting the first one out of the way is awesome. It's, it's very exciting. A Herculean effort. Feels good. Yes. Feels really good. So Well, you should be celebrating. Thank you. Uh, so last question yes. before we go. Yes. This one's very specific to you. Okay. So on Sending the Wolf, yes. as we said, you choose films from the AFI lists to discuss each week with a guest. The AFI, as we know, is a very prestigious organization that chooses films for a multitude of cultural and historical reasons to preserve for XYZ. Sure. All of these weeks and all of this time talking about the movies that AFI has chosen, mm-hmm. if AFI came to you and said, we want you to pick one film to add to our lists. What film do you add to AFI? So, so happy you asked. (laughs) So, as you know, you have been a guest on my show. And I give people this opportunity, this very opportunity. That's right. And Has um, anyone ever asked you? No. (laughs) But there is a story. The reason I came up with this end piece of the show is because I was looking at the 100 thrills list and John Carpenter's The Thing is not on it. And I was like, that is objectively incorrect. Meaning, I'm sorry, but if you're really talking about the most thrilling sequences, McCready testing the blood, that the tension, the thrills, the scares, all of it, like I don't understand how you cannot have that John Carpenter's the thing on that list. And so that is where I was just like flabbergasted. And then, by the way, Asterix, I looked at the 500 movies submitted for consideration. The Thing from Another World was on that list, but John Carpenter's the thing was not. And I was like, get out of here, AFI. Like, what? (laughs) I mean, and this is part of the beauty of, like, the show that I do. I like inviting people who are film scholars, who are passionate, who are in the industry, but who are not represented on this list. I like inviting them onto my podcast because we get to reevaluate. And sometimes we find, actually, yeah, that totally deserves to be on the list. But other times we go, why the hell is this movie on this list? Right. And if there were different voices in the room, maybe uh, this might not have made it on here. And so to answer your question, John Carpenter's The Thing absolutely needs to be on the 100 Greatest Thrills list. AFI, call me. I will write you a paper on it. I don't care. <laughs> I will walk you through whatever you need. But yes, that is my answer. And I think that's a great answer <laughs> and befitting of Dead for Filth. See? So, there it's it a is. twofer. Well, uh, oh my goodness. Yeah, I love the thing, honestly. Uh, it's great. It, it really is. And it holds up. Like, it really, there's something about, the thing and the fly are the t- are two that, their visual effects, they they do hold up, they are tangible, and they help the emotion, they, they really communicate the emotion of the story, or, or like push it along, reinforce it, you know? It's interesting too, because a lot of times the thing and the flyer are referenced in the same breath because they're both remakes, yes. and when people say you can't make a good remake, these are the two that people, John Carpenter's The Thing, yes. David Cronenberg's The Fly, these are remakes that in some way or shape or form supersede the original. Yes. But, what I, I don't 
think gets discussed often is they're both sort of about body politics. Oh, I mean, yes. like independently people talk about it, but they share this kinship where it's like your body betrays you or maybe the body in front of you is not the body that you know. And that's interesting to me, too. Well, because if I may, the people who are having these scholarly conversations or who are dictating the analysis uh, of these films are straight men. They don't have to think about what's body politics. Body yeah. politics. They don't. And and that's, again, part of the reason why I love having different voices on the pod to talk about iconic classic movies. Because the discussions we are having are not the ones that have been had for the last... And by the way, sometimes those conversations that are traditionally had about a certain thing are valuable and that's fine. But... I just, yeah, they haven't had to think about it. And so it doesn't get talked about as much. And I I agree. I think it should be. And I think that's a great full circle way to end the conversation (gasps) because we began with the discussion of why it's important to dig in, to get into the politics of what we love and what scares us. And maybe it's time to just switch up who's having those discussions. I couldn't agree more. Clark, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Clark Wolf, Clark with an E, Wolf with an E. And you can also find me on June 1st and June 2nd, 2019 at the Denver Pop Culture Con. I will be moderating lots of fun panels, including a Firefly panel and a uh, um, Smallville panel. And I will be on a Wonder Women panel with, uh, among other women, Mallory O'Meara, who I know is a former guest. Love Mallory. Love her. Yes, so that's where you can find me. Well, so exciting. Thank you so much for coming today. Truly, thank you for inviting me. This has been such a fun talk. I was a little nervous because I didn't know if I was going to be able to have an, I don't know, but what I was just nervous that I was not going to rise to the occasion. So I had a lot of fun. I think you certainly did. And I, listeners, you have some work cut out for you because now you have a lot of things to go consider about (laughs) your favorite movies. But also while you're digging into the analysis of the movies and TV shows that you love, Take some time to uh, go check out Clark's work. Listen to her podcast. If you're out and about at a convention and she's there, please go see her. And keep your eyes open for December and Satanic Panic, both of which feature her and they're coming out soon. Uh, Much more to come, I'm sure. I hope so. Fingers crossed. Well, again, thank you. Thank you. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti. Yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie original podcast, executive produced by Aaliyah J. Daniels, LaShawn McGee, Chris Rodriguez, and Damian Pelliccione. The show is produced by Drew Phillips and sound engineered and edited by Josh Perkins. Download the Reverie app and use the code FILTH for 25% off your first three months.